Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everybody, welcome along, Aaron Noonan, great to have you with me, V8 Sleuth Podcast, you know that though if you're a regular listener, if you're not, welcome along, great to have you with us as we sit down for another of our sit-down chats with a special member of the Australian motorsport family. Now when it comes to Tassie Motorsport, Greg Creek's a name that pops up pretty regularly, and he's been there and done it all. Now we chatted recently, and it was such a big chat, and we covered so much ground, we've chopped it up into three parts, part one this week parts two and three to be released together next week. And as you'll hear over this huge three-parter, he's way too modest about his achievements. A kid who grew up watching Jack Brabham at Longford and idolising the world champ. Greg later became teammates with him at the event that took Tasmania to the world and put Greg on the map, Target Tasmania. There's piles of stories, plenty of cars to talk about and piles of fun. And there's a bit of emotional stuff too in parts two and three that really goes deep diving into a very difficult time in Cricky's life. If you're a fan of motorsport, I think you're going to love this chat. I know that I thoroughly enjoyed having it with him. So let's barrel in, buckle up, time to start. Part one of Greg Crick on the V8 Sleuth podcast and we start with a topic close to both of our hearts. Not motor racing, the AFL. Greg Crick, I thought I'd have to come to Tasmania to do a podcast with you, but you've come to Melbourne. Why? What are you doing here? I get out occasionally. They let Not you very out of often, the, the but island. I get out of Tassie every now and then, especially for the first round of the footy, especially when Geelong are playing tonight. I don't understand. I mean, I know you don't have a team in the AFL yet, and you should. I'm totally on board with that. I the don't whole. think we should. You don't think you should? No. Why? Because you'd have to give up supporting the Cats. Well, Tasmanians are parochial AFL, VFL people and mm. we've all, all got our own teams and we'll have a lot of people converted to Hawthorne when they came to Tasmania pretended they were half oh, Tasmanians. On. And they not. were on board with Hudson years ago. All they were doing was taking our government's money and uh, turn up there and put on a bit of a show. Um, but we've all got our own teams and we stick to them. Collingwood supporters aren't going to change to a Tasmanian team. Why don't you have like your second favourite team then? Oh, well, we can if there that. was a Tassie team, would it be your new second, your new favourite second team? No. Nah. No. no. Well, no. why do you so? Why did you pick Geelong? Geelong. Yeah. When I was about four or five years old, there was a, a great big ruckman called Polly Farmer, uh-huh. and uh, he was my hero as a kid. When I used to see him take that ball out of the air and handball it further than most people could kick it, <laughs> and I've been Geelong supporter ever since. And you just don't stop reminding me that you are. No. Every time Especially I see Especially when you, we win. <laughs> oh, at every trap, I cop it from yeah. you every yeah. time, every time. Um, Thanks for sitting down with me. We've been wanting to do this for a while to catch up with you because there's so many things to, to chat about. And not long ago, we actually did a chat night, didn't we, down in Tassie at the uh, the museum in Launceston with Marcus Ambrose and Owen Kelly and, and JB. And um, it's a nice little warm-up for, for this chat because it started a couple of topics rolling. So am I right in from what you said on that night that you grew up at Longford? Like you were around there all the time back in the day. Well, I grew up at Perth, which was uh – Essentially, probably a mile and a half from the 
Mountford Corner on the Longford Circuit. So, so you could hear the cars. From we could hear the cars yeah. when we were in school and we always had our bikes ready to go, you know, they're freshly painted with a couple of spray cans and some clackers on the on I was going to say, you've got to have this big clackers. Have yeah, yeah. Brand new plastic <laughs> ones that made as much noise as possible and as soon as we got out of school, we were up to Longford and and uh, I saw the sights and sounds of Longford probably from the time I was three or four years old because my mum and dad both worked there, as did everyone in the local community. And mm. like if you read... Neil Kearney's latest book, you know, Longford, a little town with a big motor. It's all about the town, but how they actually managed to run such a big event, motorsport event in in that community with all volunteers. It was amazing. I noticed how you said that you waited till you got out of school to go to the track. What you never wagged to go to the track. Oh, I was primary school. You didn't wag in <laughs> primary school. <laughs> you hadn't discovered your bad boy element. Yet no, by that not stage. quite. Not quite. <laughs> It was it was um, sort of bubbling away there though. I was ready to go. Yeah. Well, yeah. was it that proximity to Longford that captured you on cars and motorsport and oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Like it was just so captivating. Like you know, we were kids and we were running across the track to get Jack Brabham's autograph and Denny Holm and whoever else was there. And I got my little autograph book still at home with Jackie Stewart, Jack Brabham, Jim Clark, all these autographs that that people would die for. You know, and we just used to run across the track between races and get them. It's just a different world, isn't it? It's yep. like saying to people these days that um, Lewis Hamilton, uh, Max Verstappen, Sergio Perez, you know, rattle off all the names of Formula 1 drivers, they come here during summer to race their season-old car yep. um, on a, around the roads around near your house and you can go and see them. It's the equivalent. It's mind-blowing. Like, it is. It's um, unbelievable. Yep, and they always to go to the Longford River and go water skiing. Someone would have a boat there and they all love water skiing, so they'd be skiing in the Longford River, you know, early in the week before the races started and they were just – they mixed in the community. Jack Brabham had, have his, had his car in Launceston doing something at the Repco workshop and then drove it from Repco workshop in Launceston back out to Longford to the track. You know, it was just a different era. <laughs> when did you think – I'm going to go and do this, like I'm going to get behind a wheel. Then. Right then. Oh, when, I was, when I was a kid, like all I ever wanted to do was race cars and ran around the house like an idiot making car noises. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it was just, it's a life, lifetime thing. But you see, it was more than just the Formula 1 drivers. You had all the local people, like and your, your local heroes were racing as well. So it was... Um, Best it, of both worlds. It was the best of both yeah. worlds. Like it was, yeah, it was just such a huge event for Tasmania on such a dangerous and unique circuit. So were you there any other days when it went really wrong yep. at Longford? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. The fr- I think it was Friday afternoon when Timmy, Timmy Mayer got killed um, over the – there was a hump going towards the um, the old Longford pub and he lost control when he landed over that hump and speared off and hit a tree which there were many of them right beside the track. There was, you know, weren't many safety features in those days and he was killed then and I was in close proximity when Rocky Trasice went off just past the control tower and hit a photographer and, and he died as well. And there was Dennis Wing on a motorbike, went off under the under the viaduct and was killed. So, you know, you remember these things and uh, that was part of the, I don't know, part of the danger and, and that that we accepted mm. of motorsport. Did that curb or change your approach to it having seen it? I mean, as, you know, in your teens or as a kid, that's not the sort of stuff that kids in their sporting interests, whether in a footy or cricket or basketball or whatever it is, people dying is not 
standard. It doesn't happen. It's mega, 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 uber, uber rare. But in motorsport, it was par for the course, particularly in that era of the 60s and, and the like. So that changed the way you looked at the sport moving forward, particularly when you started competing? No, we, we didn't think about danger or circuit safety or the things that we look at now and, uh, you know, everyone's pretty risk-averse these days. There, there wasn't much of that mm. in those days. The best thing they had at Longford was a couple of boats at the at both bridges with divers, scuba divers on them in case someone went off the bridge so they might have a chance of diving down and getting them out. But, you know, it was – and I suppose, you know, we weren't too worried about safety. All you wanted to do was be a bit of a daredevil, if you like, and race a car. And we did plenty of practice around that Longford circuit, believe me, when I turned about 17 and there was a lot of laps done around there. Late night? Yeah. What in? Oh, anything. I had a um, – I think the first thing was a um, XK Falcon um, and then it was probably a Cortina or something, but there was plenty of laps done around there. All the local boys used to be up there every night. <laughs> you're not you're, it's too far gone now. You're not incriminating yourself or, or anybody else. Were, were you mechanically minded at the time or were you all about driving? No, no. I always – well, I decided very early on, much to the disgust of my father, that I, wanted to, I was going to be a mechanic um, so that I could race cars and all I got told was what an idiot I was wanting to be a bloody grease monkey and <laughs> he was disgusted because his, his boss who was a, a very well-known man in the Launceston community had me jobs at the Launceston Bank for Savings as a bank teller and something else that he wanted me to do and I just rejected all of it to go and be a mechanic and so I, was, I earned the wrath of my father for that. Did it calm down later on? Uh, maybe much later on when I started going into business and doing things. But, you know, everything that I did going into business also was a, a part of being driven by my love of the sport and wanting to continue in the sport. So it was always it was always um, my goal was to make enough money to be able to go and race something successfully. Yes, it's not a thing about I'm going to be good at business to make piles of money, but I'm going to make the money to go car racing. Yep. It's pretty much at all, it's a means to an end. Yeah, it was a means to an end and, and I people used to say to me when I was young like how much money I wasted on motor racing but to me it was never ever a waste because it was a means to what I wanted to do and as a result, you know, ended up with quite a successful couple of businesses and, and did okay but the motivation was my love of the sport and wanting to be able to do the sport that I, wanted, I love so much. What was your first race car? FJ Holden. How much did it cost you? $325. I, I love that you remember exactly yeah, what I it do. cost and I you. such a car dealer. I can't you? remember what happened yesterday, but I remember <laughs> that because I'll never forget it. It was I bought it off a guy by the name of Doug Young down at Smithton. It used to be Gene Cooks, who was a famous mm. name in Tasmanian motorsport. And uh, yeah, I sold – I had my XK Falcon that I'd rebuilt as a road car and I sold that to buy this FJ and then – Dad was so pissed off with me that he refused to take me to work even though he drove right past the door and I had to catch the bus to, <laughs> to work. Because so you I, don't have your road licence at this stage? Uh, well, I just it was just before I got my road licence and I'd done this car up for the last 12 months so I had a road car and then I sold it to buy a racing car and never had a road car. So he had to be a taxi? Yeah, but he didn't. He wasn't, <laughs> even though he was driving No, past. drove straight past the door. He hated motor racing and never, ever wanted me to have anything to do with it and I think he went to two races in, while he was still alive yeah. and uh, both times he he said to my mum, get me out of here, Jean, get me out of this bloody place. He didn't like it at all. 
What was your first? Do you remember your first race? When was it? Where was it? Yeah, it was uh, Simmons Plains. One week after I turned seventeen and got my license, yeah, so I started racing. In uh, oh God, I can't even remember what year that was. It was a long time ago, though. I did some homework. Yeah, nineteen seventy-one. Ring a bell. That's about right. Yeah, yeah. it would yeah. have been October nineteen seventy-one, which would have been yeah about a week. I think it was after my seventeenth birthday. So this is sports sedans. Is this what's no? There was, was a category sort of a category of no. There stuff. was early model Holdens was oh, a category. Right. Yeah, right. And there was there were heaps of them. You know, there were probably twenty five early models even in Tasmania. It was just they were the car you raced. You know, you could mm. find them everywhere, and and uh, it was like HQ became and now like Hyundai's mm. have become. They were the category of choice in my day. Were you any good? Do you have a clue what you're doing? Well. I used to be able to drive it around on two wheels pretty well. There's some good <laughs> photos of it on two wheels. But, um, I suppose it was all a learning thing and like your, your mechanical skills, I was 17 the first year apprentice and luckily I had a few good mates that used to come around and help me a bit but, you know, she was pretty pretty rough and ready and we'd be going into the track and I'd be laying under the back putting oil in the diff on the trailer or something while we were lined up to get in. It was, you know, it was all learning. It was all learning and we just did it and you did it with your mates and I'd have, one of my mates would be towing the car for me because I didn't have a car and we'd have a borrowed trailer off someone else and that's just how you did it. It was just... You winged it and yeah, did what you could. make it up as you go and... Shit loads of fun and if you knocked a headlight out of it, you'd go and get another one because they're laying everywhere, you know. <laughs> it was just... It was great, great times and great funs. But those cars were also... You know, pretty highly developed. The old grey engines revving the daylights out of them. We had Repco pistons in them and roller cams and, you know, there was still a lot of technology for the day in those cars, even though you had three-speed and three-speed on the tree. Yeah, I was going to say. Had a double clutch it back to low at the hairpin and uh, and four-wheel drum brakes, you know. They were pretty interesting cars. So what did you develop into? What came next along the line? Was it a case of buy the next fastest car once you've you've saved up the cash or because did you make a profit on that holden or did you uh, lose because you you wouldn't remember surely no i don't remember oh you must I have made a profit on it. you would have remembered but you sure. know the car still exists it's still in hobart today and and really family got it down there yeah another guy had it and he actually did a targa in it oh like really about maybe 15 years ago or something yeah wow yeah, I had actually had a drive of it at the Storics one year. Yeah, yeah. So she still exists, and it's still, still the wheels still turn. But I can't remember um, what I got for it. I just remember selling it, and I sold it to another mate who's still got the logbook, and he's waiting for me to buy it back so that I, he can sell me the logbook and make a profit on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, love it, love it, love a good deal. Uh, what was next? What was it? What, what did you go into after that from the Holden? Uh, well, I think. From memory, the next car, Gene Cook built a lightweight Falcon. Um, like a, a four-door or a coupe? Yeah, or it a... was a four-door, like an XK Falcon with a 3.6 um, Falcon, <coughs> sorry, 3.6 Ford engine with a cross-low head and weavers and it was very, very light and very complicated roll cage in it made out of exhaust tube, <laughs> single hoop, you know, and every bit of weight pulled out of it and some aluminium panels on it and... Uh, when Gene so started driving his L34, he, he let a guy drive it who'd been um, working for him and it ended up getting crashed and it was sort of bent in half. You know, he hit the end of the Armco and I bought the wreck and a mate of mine, Spider Johnson and myself, rebuilt that car and Spider was a sheet metal worker so he just did a beautiful job of that car and built 
the aluminium panels himself and you know it was just spot on it was a beautiful car and that's what I won my first ever race in in that car in the Falcon I think I was probably 18 or maybe just 19 then do you think wow I'm on my way now I no, want to race no no, no. <laughs> I think I am um, when I actually led a race and it was at Baskerville, I can, I can remember it and the car was still undercoat grey because we'd just built it and hadn't quite finished it and I think I nearly fell off because I got such a shock that I was in front. <laughs> you got a bit of practice being in front over the years in various categories and, and cars but was, was there a turbocharged XU1 Tirana at some stage? That you, there was. Uh, it sounds like a bit of a wild... It thing was. to go and do. Yeah, no, but everyone, everyone in Tassie went for turbocharged Tiranas because Wayne Mankin was a Tasmanian boy who came over here and started Mankin Auto-Tune and he started specialising in building very fast turbocharged six-cylinder Holden engines and he had the old Harrop um, EH, Ron Harrop EH, and he put a turbo six in it and it was absolute missile while it kept going. Mm. <laughs> um and it had passed the V8s and we all thought, shit, this is the way to go. So I bought a, a turbocharged engine to put in this Tirana that I'd built um, and without great success because I just couldn't stop blowing turbos. I don't know whether it was something I was doing wrong or what the deal was, but we used to blow one turbo after the other and very rarely ever finished a race. And then in the end, a couple of mates, Clive Stafford and Paul Minahan, had been racing an alloy-headed XU1 and they'd stopped racing and they still had the engine out of the car and they said, for Christ's sake, put our engine in this car and and see how you go. And I put the engine in the car and immediately we, I think the first or second meeting I ran it, I won the Tasmanian Sports Sedan Championship in it. So that sort of, then I started winning races because I realised you just don't need the car with the most power, you need the car that finishes as mm. well, you know, and, and um, that was when we started winning some races. So in the 80s, you haven't, you're not really venturing away from Tassie for car racing. You're... Shit, no, I'd only been to Melbourne <laughs> once, I think. <laughs> so where does the business, I mean, you, you've trained as a mechanic by this stage, but where where does the car, is the car dealer stuff coming soon? No, or no. Are, we, are we a long way off from that's, that? Or that's, that are we still a, in the mechanic mode or what, what's, what's, what's funding this? How's this all Well, going? then I was still an apprentice and I remember like when your first year apprentice, I was on $17.50 a week. Um, and then when I bought that Falcon, I remember saying that Ian Johnson, my mate Spider, who helped me build the Falcon, oh, God, if I can't afford it now, I never can because I was on $25 a week. Ooh. Big money. Look out. Big money then, you know, Take 25 bucks then. a week. So I was still funding that myself and I'd work of a night at, at Gene Cook's workshop at Longford or at the service station at Perth all weekend and that's how I funded it, just by, by working and making extra money or I'd buy an old Hillman or something off the Raymond Manning used car yard while, where I was an apprentice and I'd give her a bit of a clean-up, a bit of a spruce-up, and she'd be in the paper on Saturday morning and I might make, you know, 50 bucks or something, and that's how I did it. Yeah, and just a little bit more. Little yeah, a little bit little more. A little bit more. Yeah, like yeah. Suddenly it, it gets rolling down yeah. the track. So when did it go from fun yeah. to – and clearly it's, it's almost – it's well, obsessions have probably got a negative connotation to it, but you're putting all your energy into – making the bucks, working multiple jobs, buying and selling cars to keep this whole thing rolling along. Was this all of the aim of 
I'm going to make this my profession as a driver and this is how I'm going to do it or it's a case of there's no grand plan. I just love doing this. This is the way I have to do it Yeah, and who knows where it There goes. was never a grand plan and that's the difference now. Like no one helped you, no one guided you. We just did it because we loved it mm. and just kept doing it. There was never a grand plan. Just I wanted to race cars and I didn't know where it might end up. I just did it. And see, from that Tirana, we then... Gene Cook built me because he was a very good speedway racer and a good fabricator and we built a chassis that was a scaled-down Rayburn chassis off his speedway car and put a Mazda RX-7 body on it, local panels with a, with a peripheral port rotary and um, that car was probably the cheapest, most successful car I'd ever owned in my life, like brand-new car with a brand-new rotary peripheral port engine and it cost about 9000 bucks, I think, and that was probably in 1980 seven I reckon Hmm. Um, and it was just so practical and such a great little car and strong and sturdy and you know that's the way race cars should be it wasn't flimsy it didn't bend easily it didn't bend steering arms easily and it was just a fast great little car especially at Baskerville which was such a handling track struggled a bit at Simmons against the big engine turbo engine sixes and the V8s that were around but Baskerville it was as fast as anything you guys never worry the fact you only had two tracks the runoff. Well, no, we didn't. We didn't know much about anything else. We, we were like <laughs> Americans. There's no other country exists but Tasmania. <laughs> and we were just locked in there, you know. And we didn't know much about anything else. It's just one of those things. We were there, and that was our world. So by the time you're in this Mazda Sports sedan, so we're talking '86, '87 sort yeah. of period. Uh, I'm presuming the apprenticeship is finished by now. By the way, I think we should be out of the apprenticeship stage at this point, surely. Yeah, I was. So what are you doing by this stage? Yeah. Uh, Well, I'd done quite a few things. I had, when I was 20, I went into a service station at Perth, which was my first business with a couple of mates who were older who grew up across the road from me, Ian and Bruce Johnson. And uh, we went into the the roadhouse at Perth. But Bruce and his wife had the roadhouse and Spider and I had the service station. And uh, I did the mechanic work and Spider served the petrol and you know all that sort of thing and i went in there and when i was 20 years old with with ian half share in the service station and it was a matter of i had a old bloody falcon road car and a toolbox and i went to the anz bank at longford and they gave lent me 10 grand to go into this service station which you know probably wouldn't happen today and that's we started off in the service station when i was 20 and i was i was in there probably till i was 25 or 26. Mm. And then I went in just to a workshop in Launceston doing mechanical work and then it went on from there and then it's a long story. My business <laughs> my business life is a pretty long story. We'll weave it in as we go. We'll yeah. weave it in. It's part of the story because it sort of helps connect the racing stuff together and why some of the things happen that happen. So for 1989, you get to go to Bathurst. Yeah. So the, the little young bloke that's grown up at Longford and seen all this cool stuff who's been working all these hours to keep his racing cars going, has never has never been out of Tassie, maybe by this stage, maybe you've escaped once or twice, but you, you've never pretty raced much, out of Tassie. Never raced, but you might have jumped yeah, on a plane here or yeah, there. Yeah. How did this whole Bathurst thing come up? For, so for 1989, it's with one of our previous guests on the podcast, Chris Lambden, who you yeah. guys pair up, paired up together in a Commodore. Um, how did that all 
come to be? Because very different time then to yeah. how you do a Bathurst 1000 deal these days. It's a fairly closed shop compared to back in those days. Yeah, well, I think that was the beauty of it. It was, you know, you everybody could have a, a goal or, or a dream and you could live your dream of getting to Bathurst, you know, even if you're just some little amateur from Tasmania that might be able to find someone that's prepared to give you a drive and you, you got to go to Bathurst, but it was... Um, you know, nowhere near what you would expect these days for what driving you need to have done or how you've got to prove yourself before you can get there. And, you know, I think it's in some ways it's great, but in other ways it's a bit of a pity that's become so elitist and the and the amateurs and the people without huge budgets used to be able to get together and put deals together and get to Bathurst. So how it came about was I, I think from memory I'd won my second Tasmanian Championship in the Mazda and Chris had seen me race and Kerry Bailey, who's another Tasmanian who I'd raced against extensively and had raced with with Chris, I think, the year before. Oh, no, yeah, he had. Yeah, yeah, yeah Bathurst. And, you did. and I, don't, I honestly don't know how it happened, but I know that I had a fine $15,000, which I got from a newspaper in Tasmania called The Sunday Tasmanian and uh, contributed my 15 grand and off we went to Bathurst in the the L or it would Bay be Bay in those car. days yep. in the Bay Repairs car yep. and <laughs> it was pretty funny you know because like everyone has a driving coach now and everyone has people helping and, 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 and but older people mentoring them and giving them advice and Paul Morris training people and there was none of that in those days and they did anything that they could to not help you. <laughs> Everything but the I opposite. think one of the funniest things was, um, you know, I was, one of the funniest things was Chris said, oh, don't worry about the track because, you know, there was no simulators. You didn't get to learn the track on the simulator and you get up there a bit early and drove around once and you go, holy shit, this place looks a bit steeper than what it did on that old black and white TV. And uh, and so he said, I oh, don't worry about it. He said, Alan Grice will, will sort of talk you around and tell you what to do So because it was an ex- Roadways, it's a roadways car. built car. Roadways yeah. built car, and Les Small had had, um, had done the car or built the engine. I think. I've been connected. Well, actually, it was the rebuilt car because Chris had backed the original car into the wall at Oran Park. Had he earlier that year? So he didn't actually, tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was the ex Brock car, but then this car was a oh, new was car, which Bob, yeah, which Bob Jones, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's so right. Roadways had supplied the engine, I think, to the mm. previous car the previous year, mm. but. This was a brand newy for, for when you so yeah you've you've yeah. turned up for the enduros in a yeah. you know, so freshie like Gri- yeah, yeah. came in to talk me like Chris said would you just talk Cricky around the and track and you've never been to Bath never been before, there ever and he was very helpful he, he said to me look mate he said you know where the pit exit is over there he said you drive out there you turn left he said go up that straight and then he said turn right and turn left again and climb up over that hill he said and you'll be right. <laughs> And that was it. Insightful. Yeah. Yeah. Not very helpful at all. <laughs> <laughs> How did it all go? How did that first Bathurst go? Oh, not very well. I, from memory, I think we had blue head gaskets and I think, you know, through the race, I think they put some head gaskets on it and we got going again. So I got my first lot of laps at Bathurst and I suppose that was the start. Mm. Yeah. And you went back the next year but not in a Commodore? No. In a, a Nissan. In a Nissan uh, HR31. And yeah. that car was a very good car for, for him during that year and you guys finished top ten in both the Enduros yeah. as well. So yeah, it was a ripper car. An ace situation. That's um yeah. It's uh well at Bathurst for a start, like I think you'll tell me if I'm wrong, but I think we finished seventh. 
Uh, was it ninth or eighth? It was back half of the Well, we were in the top ten yeah, anyway. Top but 10. that car top. stopped every lap for however many laps we completed because there was a sensor failed in the morning warm-up and no one could find out what it was and Gibsons couldn't, never had the time to come and look at it because they were trying to run their own cars and at every lap for how 160-whatever laps we did, it actually stopped and we'd have to turn it off and turn it back on again. What, to, with the key or with a button uh, I or think, whatever I think, it was? I can't remember what was in it, but we had, we had <laughs> well, to restart it, it because it had gone and shut down and we just had to restart it and we, we got through that race and finished in the top ten, which was a terrific result. And I think the same thing happened at Sandown, but you mm. know better than me, mm. I can't yeah. remember. Yeah, I was there. I was My there biggest way. memory of Sandown is like <laughs> remain nameless, but I had a mate who was in the armed robbery squad over here and, I was talking to Chris about it the other day, but he couldn't remember it. But they they knew I was there, and he was all stirring me about, oh, you know, you need to come to the advanced driving school at the police academy. We'll show you how to drive. So the garage after practice, the garage doors flew open at Sandown. There were tin sheds there, and in came the armed robbery squad and threw me over the back of the car and put handcuffs on me and took me out and threw me in the squad car. The light on the roof and off they went down Springvale Road. <laughs> and everyone's going, what's he done? So he everyone must... thinks you've just been nabbed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just took <laughs> off and went around the block and then took me back and let me out. Imagine how much trouble they'd be in for that, doing oh. something like that these days. <laughs> it doesn't happen these days. That's, no. that's for sure. That's for sure. So while, while we're around this sort of period of yeah. this stuff, what do you call Lambda? What's your, what's your nickname for him? Spoon. Spin. The, spin. That's what? Kiwi for spin. Oh, right. Yeah. Why? Well, he used to spin a lot. Oh, did he? <laughs> does he know this? Yeah, of course he does. You've only been calling him that for, what, 30 years? Yeah. So, yeah, why yeah. stop now? No, but it, look, fair dinkum, though. We had a good, good, great time and, and pretty good success for for what we had in those endurance races and that was the opportunity I got to get started going to Bathurst. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Around that time too, mate, The and this is a thing I wanted to delve into a bit with you, that the Honda Prelude sports sedan was coming on the scene in 1990. Yep. So same yep. time, same year, obviously the, the, the injuros are a different yeah. thing. But how did that all come to be, that sports sedan that you won the champion, well, the, the national championship in? What, tell me about that and where it, the concept for it came from, the origins yeah. and how it came yeah. to be. Cause it's, it's a pretty cool interesting car. car. Um, so I suppose in 1989 I'd sold my transport business and decided I wanted to be a car dealer for some stupid reason. But <laughs> anyway, the, the new shape prelude was out that had a really low frontal area and and uh, I thought it was just, you know, it was an ideal car to build a sports sedan out of. And I'd been talking to Tony Edmondson about it and Don Elliott, who owned Elfin Sports Cars at the time, and they thought it was the ideal car, you know, the 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 basic dimensions of the car were perfect, really low frontal area, and uh, I had access to get all the new panels and that from Honda to build and the just car. just because you were a dealer for yeah, Honda? Yeah, I was a Honda dealer. That's what and you started as. Yeah, that's why I wanted to build it, and I wanted to have a Honda engine in it. But uh, that became too difficult. 
at the end of the day, we we got a an IndyCar engine which I think must have been based on a production block in those days and we thought, you beauty, we've got an engine we can put straight in this car but when we got it and pulled it apart, uh, the Americans had been into it and ground the shit out of everything and no combustion chambers, no nothing left inside it so we couldn't use that. So the original plan was just to have a 302 Chev because Tony was of the view that that car didn't need a a 350 or the big horsepower because it was going to be light and nimble and uh, it, it wouldn't need the torque. Um, but in the end, we couldn't get parts for a 302, so I'd end up with a 350 Chev in it, which was very mild. It was probably just a good boat engine, really. It had 475 horsepower. When I sold it to John Briggs and Mark McLaughlin Dino, it had 475 horsepower, so it was not a big horsepower car. But the weight, and, I guess, was what? Well, there was a minimum weight. It was built light, but I think it ended up having to be 980 kilos or something at the time, so we had to put weight in it. But mm. the car, the most interesting thing is the chassis. Like, it was the first car in Australia that was an aluminium honeycomb, um, and it had a carbon, carbon fibre front clip that was actually glued and riveted onto the front of the aluminium honeycomb um, chassis and all the front suspension hung off that and everyone said, oh, that won't last one season, that's <laughs> going to fall off and you're going to die in it, you know, like that was... <laughs> Gee, thanks for the yeah, confidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, that's what everyone thought, but unbeknownst to them, I think, were, there was technology involved in that car that most people here didn't know about. Um, Carlo Lanetta, who Carlo Carbon 5 from mm -hmm. Adelaide, mm -hmm. um, was worked on the car and he built it from scratch and his brother, uh, I think, who still works in the Ferrari... Um, engineering department uh, and I think he was Schumacher's race engineer for four of his world championships so had all that knowledge of those two people behind it and they used to they were involved and I think he was heavily involved in the concept of the car because the car is very very similar to what the car he built which was the Alpha Pro car. Um, oh with the Formula One engine. With the Formula One yeah. engine and if you have a look at the chassis um, apart from the fact that the engines further forward to meet our rules, it's very, very similar to what that Alpha Pro car was. So I think that's where the concept came from for that car. And, uh, you know, to this day, I reckon you could get that car out and I've, I've seen it a few years ago. She's a, a bit of a mess now, like it needs a lot of work. It needs a complete strip and rebuild, but I think you could st still re rebuild that car and be at the front end of the sports at Anfield. The chassis was that good. It was a couple of memorable cars I remember because there was a national the national championship was pretty strong yeah in the early 90s so there's there's you there's the Riccadello Alpha um Kerry Bailey's Supra you mentioned yeah. Kelly, uh, Kerry before um Keith Carling ended up with a 300 ZX yeah. Nissan Des after being in a Mazda the, Desi Wall in yeah. a Supra yeah um you know, there was quite a decent... Monterosso and that. Uh, the little Escort. Yeah. 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 Um, the Jag was floating around too, yeah. the Calibon Jag. Yeah. Um, there was some pretty cool cars. Like, that racing, was that good racing from what you recall? Oh, it was, yeah. It was great. It was very competitive and it was it was good racing. Like, Mick Monterosso's car used to be just an absolute missile in a straight line. A so tiny you, Escort you'd with never, the big Chevy. You'd never beat him off the line. So, you know, if, he, if you... We're on the front row, even if you're on pole, you know you're going to get beaten off the line. You'd have to work your way past him somehow. So there was some good racing. It was close racing. And like I, had a, I remember one day at Lakeside with Gary Scott, I passed him around the outside through the kink at Lakeside and hit that bump. And I think I just landed on the 
outside edge of the track and made it around there by pure luck, you know. <laughs> and, and then, um, it, you know, it was just it was good racing. It was very competitive, but those cars were hard work and hard work to keep going. And I never really had the money when I built that car. It went pretty well over over the budget but you know in today's budgets nothing i think we thought it was going to cost 100 grand to build it and i reckon it cost 180 mm. and uh i won the championship and then the next year i think we had the car sorted a lot better and uh we'd won the first two races quite easily and i thought i want to get out of this and move on to something else i wanted then i had a, the idea that i could get into supercars so I sold it to John Briggs and sort of moved on. It's a bit of a theme in your racing that you've got your business world going as well. So you sort of you're in and out a couple of times along the way, but this was the moment when you're going right. I'm going to main. We call it main game now, don't we? Touring car racing. It yeah, was then. But really, all, all I ever wanted to do was do Sandown and Bathurst, and maybe if I could do a few races through the year, because I always had my business mm. first. And by this time, I had young children. You just think I've got to keep working. Yeah, did were Honda okay with the Honda Sports then? Because it wasn't a Honda Honda. Yeah, like they didn't, didn't. They didn't mind. No, <laughs> just put the Honda name out there. Yeah, because yeah. it? it was it was white. No, it was, it was red, red to start red initially, with, wasn't it? and yeah. we painted it white. Um, I think David White, who used to be a Channel Ten, yeah, got me yeah. some money from the Tasmanian government that to do the IndyCar event and that, and it was white then. Mm. Yeah, because it was red with black and shell. I think from memory, yeah. it was on it for yeah. a time, but. So you won the championship in 91 and then 92 was that year that you mentioned that you started and did the first did a round, few and I think, won and the few and just bailed out. Yeah. But 92 brings some other good things into play here. Yeah. So 92 is the start of Targa. Yeah. Targa Tassie. How do you end up tied in there? Because at the time this was this really new, oh, this is a bit different for anything that we had in Australian motorsport, mm. this tarmac rally and... Tasmania and driving around and nice cars and some big names. It was big news, big stuff. How do you get – did you see this and go, I have to have a go at this? Or did something else happen to sort of lead the well, pathway to it? I was a Honda dealer and I, I knew the event was going to happen. I thought, oh, I've got to do this somehow. And the NSX had just been launched, so I went to them and asked them whether – they might be interested in doing the event in NSX and they didn't give me an answer because Honda in Australia are always pretty conservative. They weren't all that wrapped in motor racing. And then they uh, they must have thought about it and decided that it would be a good promotion. So they decided to do a two-car team and um, they, they put something together with myself and Jack Brabham um, in two Honda NSXs. So... <laughs> They didn't have much faith in me because they uh, were concerned that I would make a mess of it and and probably embarrass Honda. So they gave my car to a dealer, Robert Lane, who was a Honda dealer at Brighton, who then gave the car to me to run. So that car ran with Robert Lane Honda on it and Jack. We were a factory team, but in a, essentially they probably put me at arm's length. Just sort of in, one out, one wide. Yeah, just in case. Just in case. Just in case, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just in case. So, you know, and it, here's this this kid that used to run across the road getting Jack Brabham's autograph and all of a sudden he was my teammate. That's and pretty cool. It was, yeah. That's yeah. got to be mind-blowing. That's yeah. You would have never – what, you had your oh. first race 71, so here you are nearly 20 years later. Yeah. And the bloke is your teammate. Like, yeah. Oh. 
Yeah. That's impressive. It was pretty amazing and, and I got to know him very well and I just, he was just as, you know, sometimes they say you don't want to know your heroes but um, he was a sensational old guy and what I learnt from him and I talked to him probably very regularly up until the time he passed because he'd ring me up when he was going to get his, um, his, oh, his dialysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that he thought that the uh, phone calls were costing him money, so he'd ring me up, ring me in half an hour, I'm going to have this dialysis and I get bored. So I'd ring him up and we'd talk about motor racing, he'd tell me about Grand Prix and his recall and his memories were just unbelievable. You know how he could remember everything that happened in the Grand Prix and how Bruce was catching him, so he threw, ran off the road and pelted rocks at him and laughed because Bruce was bleeding after the race <laughs> from the face. And he, he'd bastard. remember everything, remember absolutely everything. So it was that was phenomenal for me, um, you know, to sort of get to know him. So you winning that first target Tasmania probably wasn't in Honda's thought process at the time. I don't think it was in anyone's thought process. What about yours? It wasn't. Yeah, I, I always thought I could win it. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone said, oh, he won it because he knows the roads. But there was roads there that I had never been on in my life before in Tassie. But there's something about the roads there and the winding roads and that we grew up on them and we practised on them quite a bit. <laughs> so, you know, you learn to read roads, you learn to learn to read different surfaces and, and you'll get corners on those mountain passes that are wet in areas and dry somewhere else. So, you know, there's a lot of skills and I think that's why we've got so many good Kiwi racing drivers because it's a similar place. Mm. Um, and and I think that helped me. And, uh, yeah, winning that event with, with my old mate Greg Priest who we grew up together, he was a rally navigator and and uh, to win that was a it was a big thrill to win that in front of our home crowd and at, in that early day when it was such a huge event and there was so much support for the event in the state. Had you even done a tarmac rally before no. that stage? You'd just done circuit racing. I never had a navigator in the car. <laughs> and Priestie still laughs about it today. He said I wouldn't have got to the first start of the first stage if I hadn't had him with me because I couldn't <laughs> find my way anywhere. And I couldn't, you know, they'd have notes and I didn't listen to the notes at first and it took me a long time and I had no concept of distance. Like we used to break markers and he'd be calling down, you know, 500, 200 and I didn't know how far 500 metres was in the car so we had to go out in the highway and we found this place where they measured the metres on the taxis and it's marked on the road so we went out there so I got used to how far 500 metres was or 200 metres. Yeah. High-tech, high-tech Yeah, it training. was very high-tech. High tech. It worked. Yeah. What was the appeal about Targa back then? Was was it because it was fresh and new oh. and had big names and was just such a – I mean, tarmac rallying, there's Targa insert name here everywhere now yeah. in Australia and obviously there's a um, there's been a bit going on with all things Targa in the, the last little while. But yep. was it because it was just new and fresh and different that it was so big? What, why did it work straight away so well? Well, that's what it was. It was just unique and, and it was the first big motorsport event that we'd had in Tasmania since Longford. Like yeah. Longford was enormous and all of a sudden you've got this Targa event, you've got all these unique cars and John Large did a fantastic job in making the event um, very special and special cars. You couldn't enter in just anything. It had to be a unique car, it had to be a special car and uh, like that was part of the part of the draw card Every school you went past, all the kids were out in the footpath. There were people everywhere. And then you had um, Jack Brabham, Denny Holm, 
you know, Sandra Minari, Roger Clark, all these international, Sterling Moss, all these international names coming to the event that had never been to Tasmania since, since Longford. So I think that was part of the success. Does it stand out as the most successful or important motorsport achievement of your career? Because Tassie Boy, Tassie event, inaugural event, Honda dealer, Honda car, Jack Brabham teammate, that's pretty hard to top. Yeah, I suppose it was. I was uh, yeah, I guess it is. But it was it was just another step in, you know, my love of, of circuit racing, really. Um, and I, I really, yeah, it was. It was, a, it was a big achievement. It was something I had trouble handling, though, because all of a sudden everyone in Tasmania knew who it was and I d- didn't handle that and I didn't like it very much. You just like being just cricky? yeah. People would recognise you on the street, or yeah. know you, or yeah, I did, and I wasn't or... used to that. You know, yeah. I wasn't used to that. But and and it's um, it's quite hard to get used to. How did you not handle it well? What what would you have done differently? Um, I don't know what I, I'd do because essentially, I think I'm pretty shy, and I I just like to do what I like to do. And I understand how some of these really big sports stars, from my little bit there, how they have trouble coping with it. Some cope with it really well, some don't. Mm. So you didn't help yourself really by winning it again the next year, did you really? If you're trying to keep it low key. Well, it, it helped me on the fact that, you know, there were people that said, I oh, only won it because he knew the roads and all this sort of thing. And then when we went back the next year, and I think we probably won it easier the next year. Was that in the Dogbone car? Yeah, in, in Ross the, the Palmer's Ross Palmer Dogbone car. car, yeah, which Honda leased off Ross Palmer and it had been crashed badly by Wayne Gardner. I was say, it, was, it was post-Bathurst 12-hour yeah, repair job. and yeah. it was at a, at a patch-up repair job and, and uh, you know, they they did a really good job of fixing it, the TAFE guys at Bathurst, but they struggled to fix it because those cars were so strong they couldn't just pull it out. They had to cut it and cut the aluminium subframes and had to pull them back straight. So... But it was a good car, you know. That was almost better than it. the first year. Yeah, yeah. Ahead. The first year was a completely standard car, standard tyres, standard brakes. We had different pads and different and different brake fluid, but lap sash seat belts, <laughs> no roll cage. Yeah. Um, and then the next year we had a, a proper car with a roll cage in it and harnesses that held you in place. Old Priestley used to end up on top of me with his notes just about in some <laughs> places, you know. And it was a big, big improvement. And the car was sort of basically, I suppose, you'd. You'd say it was an NSXR. And what did that do for the business too as well? That was what I was going well, to ask certainly, you Well, it certainly um, it made a difference to our business in Tasmania, yeah. Mm. It, a big, big difference. Our Honda sales jumped like you wouldn't believe, so it did have a big mm. effect on the business. That second year, I think that was the year that the 968 Porsches ran and Jimmy Richards, I think, arrived and... Then Mazdas came in the years that yeah. followed. Did you wind back from it after that, or well, Honda Honda did it for a couple of years and just didn't want to do it again. And then a dealer, one of the dealers, um, John Trevette, who was a big Honda dealer or, and BMW, lots of multi franchise dealerships in Western Australia and in New South Wales, um, he supplied me with the car to do it again in '94. But um, we a Honda I, or yeah, another another I did. I clipped a bank. Uh, I think it was in day two, we actually made a very, very bad tyre choice. We got some tyres that we thought were going to be far better and uh, 
they turned out to be not so good. They weren't quite what the uh, tyre dealer had told us they were. They were like, I think they had sparks coming off them. They were that <laughs> hard. And there was something that had been rejected by one of the OEM manufacturers, OEM supplied. Uh, they were, sorry, they were an OEM tyre that were being supplied to Porsche that had been rejected. And somehow they got to Australia and they were sold to us and Dick Johnson had them on, on his barquetta too. And I remember Dick and I both spinning out at, you know, snail's pace driving to a stage at the side. Oh, not even in the stage? No. Oh, no, jeez. No, they were undrivable. Um, so So that messed that year up a bit. And then that same car, John asked me to go and do the cannonball run with his son in the car with me, so we did that, which was which was sort of fun but, you know, pretty traumatic and bad memories because we came across that mm. that F40 Ferrari, the, the second car to pull up there and yeah. I'm going, where's the officials? Because it's just um, in the middle of nowhere at the end of a stage, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which was this, for those who might not know, it was an event that Alan Moffat had been heavily mm. involved in putting together, inspired by the old yeah. the American movies of the Cannonball yeah. Run and yeah. up through the Northern Territory and the government backed it and mm. it was 94 I think that was the year that that one yeah. happened and you know had a bunch of I think Greg Hansford did it yeah, yeah. it's a bunch of um, familiar names and known motorsport people and probably the most cool fun cars. I had on that event was with with Greg Hansford we just had a ball we had so much fun it was um, it was very unique and it was a, another unique opportunity to get to know one of our Mm. Icon, legend, yeah, legend, legend. yeah, yeah. Motor, four wheels, two wheels, one on them all, pretty much anywhere yep. he went. So, yep. so that did you do Targa's after those few years with the Hondas? Or uh, did that sort of then I stopped, and then I think it was probably. I, I'm sorry, I lose track of the years, but I reckon it was probably 2000. Um, Honda gave me a couple of. We'd, we'd done that Indy car. Oh, the Young Guns Young thing. Young Guns yeah. thing, which Marcus won. Yep, in the Integras. In the Integras, and there were heaps of these Integras, so they gave me <laughs> well, two well, of well, them. Were any of them any good after those young blokes? Not much. Thrashed them around? There were a couple of good ones, the one Marcus drove and the one that um, Christian Jones drove, Alan's son. Um, they were pretty much unmarked, but <laughs> a lot of them weren't too good. But anyway, we got we had two of those, and Honda gave us two of those, and I drove one, and Bob Jennings, a motoring journalist, drove the other one, and... Uh, that was a lot of fun because it was a wet event and we actually finished six outright mm. in a Honda Integra front-wheel drive. Pretty good. Yeah, they were a little missile, those cars, and they were so quick, especially on a wet road. There you have it, part one of my sit-down chat with Greg Crick. Good news is part two and part three are to come. You can check out the V8 Sleuth podcast library for those if you're catching up on the episodes. But if you're listening to this one, within a week of us dropping part one, just got to hold your horses. It's coming soon, and I can tell you it is worth the wait. Before I go, Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. Make it part of your weekly motorsport listening habits every Tuesday with Andrew Van Leeuwen and Stefan Bartholomeus for the latest motorsport insights and analysis, keeping the motorsport news name alive in a new era. The boys are award-winning, agenda-setting, setting the pace, best insight and analysis in the game, all that stuff. They are on it. And thank you to everyone who listens to the Castrol MM pod because the post-Newcastle 500 episode was the biggest, most downloaded episode in the pod's history. So thank you to everybody who's been jumping on board for their fix of motorsport news every week. Thanks for tuning in. Love the support that we get from our V8 Sleuth listeners. Uh, Keep the suggestions and the feedback rolling in via the socials and email, and I look forward to joining you next time next week. Bye for now.
Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.